The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1936, the English economist John Maynard Keynes proposed a theory of macroeconomics that would change the course of history. In his general theory of employment, interest, and money, he surveyed a hundred years of conventional economic wisdom and summarized how unsubstantiated ideas became so entrenched in the minds of intelligent and influential people. A hundred years of assertions by professional economists who were increasingly specialized in their field, increasingly insistent, increasingly misguided. What had once been a field open to comment had become a quasi-religion for those willing to subscribe to the prevailing theories, like true believers required to worship a single god. It hadn't always been like this. In the earliest days of economics as a discipline, intelligent people of all stripes played their part in commenting on economics, its policies, and their outcomes, its quote-unquote laws. The field was open to students, not just of mathematics and money, but observers of men, men and women and children, I should say, students of human beings. And who better to study human beings than poets, the ones who study themselves and their fellow humans, deeply invested in who they are and how they tick. Our guest today, John Ramsden, has detailed 11 efforts by poets to analyze and comment upon economics— from Daniel Defoe, born in 1660, to Ezra Pound, who died in 1972. He made some surprising findings. Here's one of them. That century of groupthink that Keynes challenged in 1936, those economists and professional politicians who stood fast in their adherence to a policy that had slid the world into a disastrous depression, and the savior, the brilliant thinker Keynes, who could see some problems with the emperor's economic clothes? Well, Keynes wasn't the first to provide an astute critique. The poets, as Ramsden tells us, had been saying this all along. What happens when poets turn their eyes to economics? John Ramsden, today, on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Let's get right to it with one uh, one sentence delay, which is my thanks to all of you for your kindness as I dealt with some difficult family news. I truly appreciate it. And now I'm looking for some brighter skies ahead as we steam into September, cracking the spines of our books and slicing open the pages. If you happen to be a 19th century reader with an unopened book, and a good sharp knife. Poets and economics, what a fascinating combination. What do we expect poets to write about? Death, I suppose, nature, we know they look at the moon and write about that. Love, Keats is the great example of all three of those things, isn't he? Death, the moon, and love all mixed together. Poets write about poetry, of course. They're not above a little navel-gazing. I write poetry, so poetry must matter a lot. I have some thoughts. That's what they, that's how I imagine them thinking. (laughs) Lest you think they're alone in this, try thinking about rock and roll music sometime. How many songs are about 
rock and roll music. A lot. That's 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 to be precise. A ton. <laughs> to be even more precise. But we know that poets are smart people. They are observant people. And in the old days, economics as a field was more open. It wasn't a a PhD-only crowd. It was sort of like electricity or architecture or chemistry in those days. Fields that were available to non-specialists as well as specialists. A wealthy man, most were men, unfortunately, though not all. A wealthy man, a person of means, could dabble in these arts and sciences, could take an interest as they might have put it. Who do we have, who do we know of, who looked at economics and what did they find? John Ramsden found 11 for his book, The Poet's Guide to Economics. Let's run through them. Daniel Defoe, Jonathan Swift. These are familiar names. These are one-name-only people. Defoe, Swift, Shelley, Coleridge, Scott, as in Sir Walter, De Quincey, Ruskin, William Morris, George Bernard Shaw, Hilaire Belloc, and Ezra Pound, all famous for their works, their poetical works, not economists who once in a while wrote a poem or two, but some of the leading poets of their era and of subsequent generations as well, pioneers in their field, generators of classic works of literature. How did those 11 approach economics And what did they get right? And where did they go wrong? Let's hear from the author himself, John Ramsden of The Poet's Guide to Economics, after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is John Ramsden, a historian and economist whose professional life has taken him from merchant banks 
to the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office, where he was posted in Dakar, Vienna, Hanoi, and other places in Europe, including several years as the ambassador to Croatia. His new book, The Poet's Guide to Economics, was decades in the making. It tells the story of 11 famous poets who turned their eye toward the fields of money and finance. John Ramsden, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you, John. So I mentioned that this book was decades in the making. What first gave you the idea that there was an interesting connection to be drawn between poets and economics? Well, I stumbled across the fact that people who are basically poets had written books with titles like The ABC of Economics. Oh, you're right. Uh, you know, <laughs> and I thought that's pretty amazing. So when I started looking into it, I found there were quite a lot of them. Yeah. I mean, you start with Daniel Defoe in the 1690s and you run up to Ezra Pound in the mid-20th century. I think he was the one who wrote the ABC of Economics, right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. And it's it seems amazing to us now, but... You know, maybe we just have moved into a different realm. Economics has gotten so specialized. And is it that we're talking about a different era where it was possible to be sort of an, you know, a, a worthwhile contributor to economics in the, I guess, 17th, 18th and 19th centuries? Yes, I think economics in, in those days was called political economy. And it wasn't seen as some abstruse mathematical field, but as part of common experience. And al although people tried to analyze it with the tools of uh, observation and logic, you know, it was something that was open to any intelligent observer to contribute to. And I, I think we've lost a lot from the fact that economics has disappeared into a sort of mathematical ivory tower, where all mortals like me can't even get a handle on what the basic assumptions are. Right. And when you say we've lost something... Do you mean that economics doesn't get the contributions it might have gotten from people who weren't weren't so mathematically minded? Or do you mean the rest of us have lost something by not being able to comprehend economics on the level that the experts do? No, I, I think, well, we've both lost because, after all, economics has an enormous influence on daily life. And indeed, it extends its hold on daily life, you know, every day economics gets more and more entrenched in more and more areas of daily life, even as we understand less and less about it. But economics is based on assumptions which need to be questioned all the time. I mean, I think one of the lessons from these 11 poets is that they were pretty good at critiquing the economic dogmas of their day. And many of those dogmas that, that, that they attacked were later abandoned. I mean, not just because they were sort of unfair or hard-nosed, but because they were simply wrong as economic science. I mean, to give you an example from our own times, the great financial crash of 2007-2008, which the economists completely failed to predict. And that, as far as I can understand, was because they had certain assumptions baked into their models, which were simply wrong. Mm. For example, they paid no account to financial speculation and they had a sort of inbuilt assumption that the economy would tend to stabilize. And, you know, the rest of us couldn't put our hand up and say, oh, you know, you must be mad because, you know, their models are simply not accessible to us anymore. Yeah. There is an example. I wish I had looked it up uh, before because I'm going to be doing this from memory and I might be getting it wrong. But the novelist Thomas Wolfe 
had said at one point, and he kind of predicted the great crash of 1929. And he had said he knew we were headed for trouble when I think he was at a tea party or something. And all of the women who were, you know, serving the tea and everything were talking about the stocks that they had bought and the the great buys that they wanted to get in on. And, and it was it had reached so many people in society that he thought this has to be kind of a bubble. This can't be the right way. These people don't know enough in order to make the sort of decisions. And this can't just keep going up forever. Exactly. You just have to observe. And after all, Coleridge got it right. Coleridge described a cycle, what he called Icarian credit, with the various stages of a financial bubble. And then, you know, Icarus flew too close to the sun with his wings of wax and collapsed to the ground. And that's what Coleridge saw happening in finance. And it was another 150 years before the famous Hyman Minsky came along and described the Minsky moment and was poo-pooed by the economics profession until it actually happened in 2007. So, you know, as I say in my book, Coleridge wouldn't have been surprised in a way that the experts were. Yeah. Now, can we also say that the profession of poetry or the vocation of poetry has changed as well? I feel as if the people that we're talking about were a bit more respected in terms of their status in society. And today, maybe poets are asked to stay in their lane or dismissed as idle dreamers or what would you know about this? And the people we're talking about seem like they were, I don't know, prominent and taken seriously as thinkers. Or is that just something I'm looking at in retrospect? Were they dismissed at the time? No, I think you're quite right to point it out. I mean, the poets, certainly at the time, these men of enormous education, learning, they knew their classics, their philosophy, and they saw themselves as the heirs of Dante and Homer and Milton, and they were responsible as poets for the sort of moral tone of society. And, and I think part of the reason they got into this is that they saw this economics becoming the kind of unspoken religion of society and thought, well, this is wrong because this religion is all wrong. And so they you know, felt the need to tackle this new religion, which was supplanting the sort of values which poets used to be responsible for in the, as what they would see it, the good old days. I mean, I'm not a pundit on modern day poetry. I have the impression of people who are great craftsmen who think very, very carefully about the craft of poetry and about making sure that, you know, whatever they say comes with an authentic personal voice. But we live in an age of specialization. And I think in a way, we're the worst for it. Right. Okay, so you've chosen 11 poets for your focus. As I mentioned, we start with Daniel Defoe in the 1690s, and we end with Ezra Pound. What were you looking for as part of your selection process? Who made the cut, and how did you determine that? Well, the main criterion was to have written seriously about economics. I mean, not just letting off steam about inequality or something, but to have actually sat down and written you know, something recognizable as a book or pamphlet about economics. So, for example, Walter Scott led a a successful campaign to see off a reform of the Scottish banking system, which would have decimated fledgling Highland industries. And Jonathan Swift did something pretty similar in Ireland. Others, you know, uh, Ruskin wrote two books about economics. And the second one, which appeared about 100 years after The Wealth of Nations, begins with the words, these pages contain, I believe, 
the first accurate statement of the laws of political economy published in England, which suggests that, you know, he was pretty sure of, of what he was saying. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was, I was more rigorous about had they really written, made a real contribution in the economic field than about their poetry. I mean, you know, some of them, Coleridge or Shelley or Pound, were, you know, indisputably poets in the modern sense of people who, you know, really think and care deeply about the whole craft of poetry. Others, like Defoe or, or Swift, I mean, just took writing in verse as, you know, something you did and wrote enormous amounts in verse, but, you know, weren't primarily poets in quite the same way. But I feel that on the spectrum from poetry to economics, you know, they, they all belong clearly at the poetry end of the spectrum. Right. And so someone who would write about, let's say, difficult working conditions, or I'm thinking of Wordsworth's poem about getting and spending, we lay waste our powers as if we're sort of moving too fast, we're too concerned with consumer items. That's not really enough in order to qualify as a, a poet who's commenting on economics. Yes, exactly. I mean, if I had structured the book differently, you know, I could have, of course, mentioned that. But I decided in the end, after trying various models, that, you know, I didn't want to replace the poet's voice with my voice. And the best way to let the poet's words really speak out was to give each one a chapter and to use plenty of, of their own words. And if I had done a, a sort of framework more entirely of my designing, calling on a poet here and a poet there to illustrate different themes, I felt I would have got too much in the way. And so, you know, that you're quite right to point out that poem of Wordsworth. And the, the reason I didn't use it was because, you know, I, I didn't feel Wordsworth personally had really got engaged with economics. Indeed, I think he was known to regard the whole subject as complete tripe from beginning to end. Mm, yeah, I'm guessing that a lot of poets, and maybe this is a stereotype, but it seems like a lot of poets would almost view it as beneath them, that it would be sort of, you know, that they were working on a higher plane and that that was something like politics and other things that would be for the the bean counters or the the greedy or the captains of industry or something, but not for the the poets. It wouldn't be worth their time to dive in. Well, there's a bit of that. I mean, even in, even in Shelley. But on the other hand, I think there's a feeling which grows in time as the sort of contradictions in the capitalist system become more sort of glaring that, as Bernard Shaw put it, you know, your, your art won't come right until your economics comes right. You know, if you're writing, for example, at the most basic level, you're writing things that you hope that poor people will also be able to read. Well, the first thing they've got to do is have enough to eat. But also, I think, a feeling that if the prevailing sort of values and ideas in the society are ones that are completely inimicable to what you're trying to do as a poet, then, you, you know, you've got a pretty big headwind there, which is why, as I say, I think they set out to tackle economics rather head on because of the sort of values and assumptions underlying it, which they felt to be wrongheaded. Mm -hmm. OK, let's take a quick break and then we will come back and talk about how they thought the assumptions were wrongheaded and talk about some more specific examples.
Okay, we are back with John Ramsden, who has written The Poet's Guide to Economics, which looks at 11 poets and their forays into the field of economics. You mentioned that often the poets would see things that the economists were missing, and a lot of economics is based on assumptions. And I'm wondering if there are any particular patterns or trends that you're noticing. Are they seeing that people are suffering more than the economists would notice? Or are they seeing that the world is more complicated than economists would notice? Or maybe we should talk about specific examples instead of trying to find a, an overall trend for the 11. Yeah, well, let's do some specifics. First of all, finance, money. I mean, <laughs> the funny thing is that economists have often been strangely uncurious about money. They just regarded as the sort of what you keep the score in. And certainly the 19th century economists were absolutely, you know, they were quite open about it, that money was a sort of veil over the underlying transactions, but didn't actually affect them. Now, the poets, all the people from the literary camp, I think had, a, funny enough, a much better grasp of money and finance in, in a funny sort of way. I mean, the foe within three years of the founding of the Bank of England was writing about the extraordinary power of credit, that credit was actually more powerful than money. And, you know, there's a long passage in The Complete English Tradesman about how credit will make armies fight without pay and navies put to sea without money and all this, which, of course, turned out to be absolutely correct. It was the basis of British power, indeed, throughout the 19th century. But money, of course, then has effects on the economy. For example, it can cause slumps, as Coleridge described, which was something which mainstream economists simply didn't factor into the model until Keynes came along. The other thing about money, which Ruskin was rather good on, is that money is a unique commodity because you can accumulate unlimited amounts of it. It costs nothing to store. You don't have to have a purpose in mind. You can just go on accumulating endless amounts of money. And this actually, in itself, has a tendency to skew the real economy. And I mean, fascinating books have been written about this. The wonderful book by Colin Campbell, Romantic Ethos and Modern Consumerism, it's not quite the right title, where he, you know, explaining how actually in a curious sort of way, it was the romantics who set our imaginations free to think up all these extraordinary ways of spending money. And it was the sheer sort of infinity of things you can do with money that made all this possible. But of course, the other thing you can do with money is actually just save it up just for the sort of potential of having it all. And, and this makes money a rather a bit of a rogue element in the economy. And that's something which I think poets understood better than economists, fun enough, until Keynes came along. Is that because they were looking at people and looking at rich people and saying or, or looking at the system and saying, well, this is unfair or this is the source of power or how did poets, how were they able to see this? Well, I mean, all the arts are based on observation ultimately and uh, poets, you know, like everybody else, they're great observers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Shelley, for example, described how credit creation by banks puts purchasing power in the hands on the whole of the rich and powerful who then go off and have also demands for all sorts of sophisticated commodities. And the, the working people still have the same number of hands, and they now, the same number of hands, have to now make all these sophisticated commodities for the people who have the credit. 
as well as their own basic subsistence needs. And so that in effect, credit devalues the purchasing power of the poor, as Shelley saw it, which is a, a fascinating insight. And of course, you know, we, we've seen it at work since the great financial crash when they've printed all this money, which has gone into puffing up the price of existing houses and assets and making the rich richer and the poor poorer. I mean, there's another side to credit, of course, which is that it creates jobs and investment. And uh, as Defoe was the first to say, but, um, you know, what, what it is not is, is simply neutral, a neutral veil. Right. And then after they diagnose these problems, they propose solutions and sometimes they get it right. And sometimes they propose things that strike me as a little bit uh, off the rails as well. What was your assessment of the proposals for fixing some of these problems? Well, you're, you're quite right to say that they were much better at uh, critiquing economics than on the whole at proposing um, alternatives. I think that tendency got more evident with the later poets because you then get ideologies beginning to you know, butt in and you get this despair of the market. I mean, I think in, the, in Defoe's day, you know, merchants were the good guys as opposed to sort of princes with their wars and bishops with their religious persecution you know, the merchant did no harm to anybody and, you know, created wealth for everybody. So it was this, you know, douce commerce was, you know, as Dr. Johnson said, a man is never so innocently employed as in the getting of money. But by the time you get to the late 19th century, you know, the view of industries is very different because of the inequalities and the upheaval and the sort of societal damage which has, you know, been done on the way. So you then get poets beginning to look at solutions which essentially despair of the market and put it aside. And you get, you know, ideas about reviving a medieval guild system or communism or whatever, which lead into a static society and into a, an obvious dead end. So they would say, and, and they would justify such a, a drastic change by saying, I've looked into the human heart, we are never going to get around the idea of exploitation or or amassing wealth to no purpose and society is just it's never going to be able to get this these hands that are clutching its neck uh, they're never going to be able to shed that unless we can completely transform society well this question of wants and needs is very interesting i mean one thing the poets all had in common i think was a feeling that most of our demands are, are actually superfluous. I mean, one of the things economics does is to make no distinction between needs like, you know, food or whatever and, and wants, which are, after all, some of our wants are completely absurd and totally sort of, you know, we could perfectly well do without. But they're all, you know, put on this neutral sort of spectrum. And you then end up with a situation where wants are potentially unlimited and we go on growing and consuming ad infinitum. Now, the poets didn't think that. They clearly felt that most of our wants were sort of, were not really necessary. And that if we all contented ourselves with, you know, basic needs, then we could do much less work, consume much less resources and devote more of our life to the higher things. Incidentally, that is exactly what Maynard Keynes, the great economist, thought and, and John Stuart Mill. So it's, it, you know, Many of the greatest economists were actually philosophers themselves. The problem is that, you know, 
economists come in all shapes and sizes and a, a lot of them sort of work for banks and are employed, tell the punters whether stocks are going up or down in the next few days. But, you know, the, the greatest economists didn't actually necessarily buy into this idea that consumption would go on growing forever. Is there some professional bias creeping in there where poets are assuming for everyone that a life with more time to dedicate to perhaps reading poetry would be a more beneficial life than one where uh, people are headed to the shopping mall? <laughs> well, it would be a reasonable thing. I mean, most <laughs> of them were totally uninterested in material goods, apart from books, of course. Um, <laughs> so, you know, they naturally assume that, you know, once you've got leisure and enough books and enough to eat and a roof over your head, you know, problem solved. But I think they did also see that this endless chase after endlessly sort of mushrooming wants was leading leading us to some very odd places and, and that it was, you know, generating a lot of unfairness and also a tendency to sort of constant social upheaval so that old patterns of life get sort of uprooted and thrown into the more of the market. And that's, you know, poets are often quite conservative folk, you know, in a sense of conserving values and traditions and indeed the natural world and things like that. Right. And looking back to the past, a willingness to embrace the lessons of the past. Indeed. I mean, most of these poets, incidentally, were not what we'd call left-wing nowadays. In fact, some of them were, were very right-wing. But maybe that's another lesson for us in that, that the sort of Davos man of the early 19th century was a utilitarian. And these people, these utilitarians, with the best of possible intentions, devised policies like the poorhouses where poor old Oliver Twist, you know, asked for his extra porridge, which turned out to be very hard-nosed and cruel. So I think... You know, we, we need to be very careful about allowing the sort of liberal, well-meaning project to get entangled with financial behaviors or sort of slightly hubristic theories, which can end up by losing the moral high ground. Right. So of the 11, would you be able to choose one whom you would say is the most accomplished Economist are any of them particularly brilliant or particularly insightful into what they were able to contribute to either their society or the field of economics? Well, it's always very difficult because you can be proved absolutely right in your economic views and yet be thought as Coleridge was at the time. He was accused by the leading economist of the day of being a complete driveler in the subject of economics. <laughs> and yet, I mean, I possibly would single out Coleridge because. Mm driveler or not, he was actually surprisingly prescient. I mean, his, I've already mentioned Icarian credit, but I mean, he foresaw that government spending and taxes would have an effect on the size of the economy. He saw the economy as a sort of circular, in fact, he described it almost as a sort of waterworks. And that's exactly how economists began to think of it over 100 years later. So he was surprisingly prescient. But at the time, he was considered a complete nutter. It's very difficult to sort of put poets alongside the mainstream economists of their day and say, you know, who was better. The economists were brilliant at producing logically coherent models. But the problem is those models were often wrong. Right. When you were doing the research, did anything surprise you? Were there any insights or positions that 
struck you as either very good or particularly terrible? <laughs> well, of course, in terms of terrible, one would have to say poor Ezra Pound, who set out with the best yeah. of intentions to uh, <laughs> criticize an unfair financial system and ended up as a supporter of Mussolini and, uh, and Italian fascism. But I think in a way, what surprised me was not so much the poets as the economists, because I you know, inevitably had to dive more deeply into what economists actually said and thought. It seemed to me that a lot of it was pretty metaphysical. I mean, I, I accept Adam Smith from that, who I, I think, you know, he was a philosopher before he turned to economics, and he was always pretty sort of qualified in his views, and, and his views have been very much, I think, sort of stereotyped. His views are much more complex in reality than, you know, they're often made out to be. But some of the theories, for example, they, they had a theory, the economists, which came to be called the Iron Law of Wages, that there was a kind of natural price for labor which could never rise above the minimum necessary to basically keep the laborer alive. Mm -hmm. And this was all based on, you know, tremendous logical superstructure. But I mean, it was absolute rubbish. And the whole idea of that there had to be a natural price was basically metaphysics. And indeed, De Quincey, one of my poets who did take economics very seriously and was a very high Tory figure. I mean, he says, you know, he doesn't beat around the bush. He says the most difficult thing about economics is that the most metaphysical part comes first. Right. So, I mean, I know that that's sort of what uh, gave rise to the phrase the dismal science, right? The dismal science. Yes, that was Carlyle who christened it the dismal science. Yes. Yeah, I guess the logic there is that workers are essentially cattle. You just have to figure out the price of feed and the price of storage, and that's basically enough to tell you what laborers will require. Well, yes, there was a, a theory, which again was completely wrong, but was held by all the leading economists. The basis of value was the amount of labor that went into making something. And you know, this, this is now completely discredited, but it was believed at the time by the brightest and the best. And I think the theory was that if the, lab, if the laborers had more money, then they'd start to be more laborers, and then the price of labor would go down again. I mean, it was pretty crude stuff, <laughs> but it was, that was the orthodoxy of the day. Mm. And of course, that was then seized on with glee by people who wanted to, you know, to enforce very hard-nosed policies towards the poor. Right. That it was a law, almost like a law of nature, the iron law, you said. Exactly. The iron law of wages. So people said, well, you know, so awful about the poor, but it's inevitable, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Maynard Keynes put it beautifully. I quote it somewhere in the book. He said, there were two schools of thought in the 19th century, those who thought it true and inevitable and those who thought it true and intolerable. But he said there is a third way that it is not true and that will save us from revolution and the whole breakdown of the system. Yeah. Did you find any economists who were reading or attempting to write poetry? Well, I didn't find any who attempted to write it, or if they did, they certainly didn't uh, get as far as publishing it, yeah. uh, not to my knowledge. <laughs> but as I say, economists do come in all sorts of flavors. I mean, Keynes and Mill and Adam Smith all began as professional philosophers. Mm. Right. And indeed, today, if you take uh, Amartya Sen, you know, this is a very great economist who is just as much as at home in, in philosophy and has indeed tried manfully to reconnect economics and ethics. But I mean, 
the, the sort of economists pouring out of business schools, you know, is, is probably a very different. I mean, some of them may have uh, deeply poetic souls, for all they know. But, you know, there, there's a very, the sort of mass profession of economics is, I think, you know, a very different thing. Right. But we do appreciate the economists who can turn a good phrase or who can, who have some facility with language and words, even if those maybe aren't the, maybe they have to have one style when they're writing for their profession, but another one when they're trying to explain things or giving speeches and so on. It does seem like the examples that you mentioned, I'm thinking are all very readable authors. Indeed. And of course, uh, J.K. Galbraith, great American economist, is wonderfully readable. Yes, and thank God, because I think it's very important that economists should write for the wider public and should explain in plain English what their assumptions are, because the assumptions are very wide-ranging. And it's important, I think, that the basic methods and assumptions of economics should be open to challenge by people who, like me, you know, don't handle all this mathematics. Right. Okay. And so... Do you see a role for poets, today's poets, being involved in economics? Well, I, I wouldn't presume to tell poets what to do. You know, poets will go where the news <laughs> takes them. But I think for the rest of us, I think one message from the poets of the past is, you know, don't be afraid to challenge jargon. If, if something feels counterintuitive, you know, it could well be wrong. And certainly the example of these poets in the past, when they put up a finger and said, hey, you know, we don't believe this stuff, they were often right. So firstly, we shouldn't be afraid of jargon. I think secondly, we should be afraid of finance. That is a message that comes through from all these poets, is that, you know, a financialized economy is, you know, is a really dangerous thing. And I think thirdly, you know, but perhaps this comes back to my first point, is that all the poets said, look, if, if you have a society which is simply devoted to the blind pursuit of ever greater economic efficiency, you know, this will lead to trouble because of the destabilizing effect it has on society that, you know, most ordinary people end up feeling insecure and sort of rootless and uh, disoriented. And, you know, so I think that is a message that we should take away from these past examples. Well, I found myself as I started reading your book that I was torn between wanting to go read more economics and learn more about it, but also wanting to read more poetry. And in the end, I decided that if I just read your book, I would get the best of both worlds. John Ramsden, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you, Jack. Okay, there we go. My thanks to John Ramsden for joining us today. His book is worth reading, whether you love economics and like poetry a bit, or whether you love poetry and like economics a bit, or everyone who's somewhere in the middle. That's my sliding scale of people, and I'm sure the overlap with this audience will be very strong. Our Venn diagram is a single circle, I would guess. I hope things are going well for you all. Lots of good books on your list, I hope. And lots of time in your day to give them the attention they and you deserve. We will be back on Thursday with a story by Kate Chopin. Speaking of economics, this will fit right in. Maybe we'll do a an annotated version of that. Those are fun. And the story is excellent. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. The story rocks. Did you try to think through the rock and roll songs that are about rock and roll? 
It's not hard, people. I love rock and roll. Thank you, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. Rock and roll, Led Zeppelin. Kiss was going to rock and roll all night. Chuck Berry and the Beatles had one called Rock and Roll Music. Bob Seger liked the old-time version. Bill Haley rocked around the clock way back in 1954. The Scorpions rocked you like a hurricane. Michael Jackson rocked with you. Twisted Sister wanted to do it. (laughs) The Clash rocked the Casbah. The Stray Cats rocked the town. Elvis rocked the jailhouse. The Jackson 5 rocked Robin. Elton John rocked crocodiles. The B-52s rocked lobsters. Queen rocked you. Were promised that they will do just that. Falco begged to be rocked by Amadeus. And my favorite title in the history of rock music, I think, was by Spinal Tap, who announced, Tonight I'm gonna rock you. Parentheses. Tonight. I'm Jack Wilson. Rock you for listening, and we'll rock you next time.